Amen. Turn, please, to Philippians chapter 4. We've worked our way fairly quickly through the book of Philippians so far. We've slowed down now uh, because chapter 4 is such a great and wonderful chapter. And today I'd like to center in on verse number 8. Many times I've said as we counsel, and many of you have been in the office counseling before, and you've been given a prescription from the Lord and from, uh, I can't say Dr. Steve, because I'm not a doctor. So. But it's not that kind of prescription, so it's okay. You know. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Well, I guess that's from Dr. Paul, isn't it? That's his prescription to us. And may the Lord help us as we go through that verse word by word today uh, to be able to apply it to our own lives. Because it isn't just good advice. Some of these are in the imperative, which means that they're commands, the things that we must do if we're going to live the Christian life properly. So we've spent two weeks really on this passage so far from verses 1 through 9. And we've set the context. The context starts in verse number 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. And I said the context starts there. That's really not true. The context goes back a ways. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have seen us for a pattern. Now, that's very, very important. And it is part of the context of what we're talking about because look at verse 9 of Philippians chapter 4. He's saying pretty much the same thing. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. And so we see a connection there between verse 17 of chapter 3 and chapter 4, verse 9, basically saying much the same thing, and it helps us. And then in the immediate context, uh, preached a message on verses 6 and 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus." We know that anxiety is a problem for all of us. We, we deal with it, some more than others, but we all have those anxious moments. Anxiety is not a sin, as I've mentioned before. If it's channeled properly, it's something built into us in a fallen world. It can call us to action. It also can immobilize us in fear if we let it. And uh, I've always thought that anxiety is uh, a very important subject, for Christians, one that's very applicable, and uh, just in its very own small way, I mean, it's pretty small sample size, but uh, the message was just entitled Anxiety, and it's been really hit a lot on sermon audio from other places. So you have to say, okay, somebody sees the word anxiety, and they want to hear what it's about, and they want to hear uh, how they can 
actually be cured or solve anxiety is what I would assume that most are trying to do. So anyway, stand firm in the Lord, verse number one. And to do that, you must think correctly and you must act correctly. And that's what verse eight is about. And acting correctly, that's thinking correctly. Verse nine is about acting correctly because of the way that we think. And these are not suggestions, as I said, imperatives are being used. They're blessed commands and vital to us if we're going to wage spiritual warfare. Now, let's look at verse 8 as a whole. The whole package together before we break it down word by word. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things, and and things uh, really becomes important here, although it's more implied uh, than said, except here, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. That makes one long sentence in the Greek. Okay. Uh, We don't, you know, in Greek it's hard to tell what a sentence is, to be honest with you. But those that are scholars say, well, here's a paragraph, here's a sentence. Okay. And then in English it doesn't always follow that way because our English rules are somewhat different. But verse 8 tells us that it's not just simple meditation. Meditate on these things. It's not just simple meditation for the sake of meditation. Uh, We know that's real popular, isn't it? Um, A lot of people, you know, they get it all by themselves, and then they clear their mind of everything and sit there and maybe hum a mantra or something like that. And that's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is actually active. It's thinking. It's actually not just trying to empty ourselves of everything, but it's incorporating right thinking so that we can stand fast in the Lord. You know, we have to weather the trials of life. One of my privileges, and it is a privilege, and I hope that you will do it, is as your pastor, as one of your pastors, we have three pastors, and we all would feel the same. We do want to hear about your trials, and we do want to hear about your difficulties, and we do want to pray for you. We do. You don't ever think that you're burdening us. Sometimes people... Uh, apologize, you know, for calling or for writing. And you don't need to do that. We're here for you. We want to be here for you. We want to know what you're going through. And um, trials and difficulties are a reality for all of us. And as we look at the, what, the way Paul frames this, it, it's, it's like a frame. See that nice picture frame there? You know, okay. Framing the five solas. Okay, that's great. You know, a frame does something for us. It it can help things. Well, Paul has framed this one by starting out with whatever things are. Whatever things are. Whatever things are. Whatever things are. And then he finishes it off with said, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy. Okay. So he starts it off that way. And then ends it off this way. And it really does make sense because the first six 
are given to us as adjectives, even though they're substantives. It's not so important to know that, but it, it, it's helpful to understand that in, in Greek and in English you can use an adjective as a substantive. Um, but the last two are nouns. And you know what a noun is, right? And so this is how he's framed this here. And what we have in verse number 8 is actually a list of virtues. We can call it a virtue list. Um, some, some um, I believe, some scholars have gone off track on this because they said, oh, look, here's a virtue list. That's what the Stoics did in Greek um, philosophy. And it's true. Cer- certainly they did. And, and the Stoics made virtue lists. And uh, a lot of times they got it right. A lot of times they were correct on what they had to say. And often they were battling the Epicureans who uh, had their own virtue list of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Not hardly a virtue list, you know, (laughs) not hardly a virtue list. Well, the Stoics were getting it closer, but that's, you know, they didn't know the true God. They didn't know the absolute truth. And so to say that Paul was borrowing from them, we'll talk about culture uh, in a little bit. I don't want to do that right now. But, um, you know, if something's good in culture, let me just say this. If something's good in culture, then it's good. <laughs> you know? and, and almost every culture has something good in it. And, of course, there can be a lot of bad, too, as we know. So at any rate, get, I don't want to get ahead of myself there. Um, Paul was not a Stoic. And we don't have to try to defend him from the accusation of simply taking Greek thought and putting it into Scripture. We, we don't have to say that, but he was a man of his times. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he also was well-versed in, in Greek and Greek thought and, and, um, and took the best of those things, too. We actually find many virtue lists in the Bible. Let me just read one to you. Um, you don't need to turn there, but um, it's found in First or Second Peter. So it's, it's not just Paul that makes virtue lists. Listen to this one from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. He says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you'll neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's another virtue list. It's a list of things that we should strive for, a list of things that are good, a list of things that are right. We find a virtue list in 1 Timothy 3 in the qualifications for an elder. We also see it in Timothy or, or Titus chapter 1. And uh, we also see a virtue list in 1 Timothy 3 uh, regarding the wives of um, the, of office bearers, elders and deacons, and uh, the, the things that they should have. You know, <clears throat> I would say this. Um, in our society, when we talk about modern-day America, woke America has made her own virtueless, but most of them are not very virtuous at all. In fact, many of the lists uh, that are done by our woke people in America. Notice I didn't say woke friends because I'm not too friendly towards them. But most of the virtues that are listed amongst the woke people 
are not virtues at all. In fact, many of them can be found in Romans chapter 1 of the reprobate mind. And if you don't believe that, read Romans chapter 1, especially the end of the chapter. And you'll see that what's being praised and what's being glorified and what's being touted as right and good and what needs to be praised is anything but praiseworthy. It's the opposite. That's just the facts of the matter. And, um, you know, but it's also true. It's also true that what might be in one society praiseworthy and looked upon as a good thing may not be elevated as highly in another society. And, And we do need to be careful. Missionaries find this to be very, very true as they go to new societies. A missionary doesn't go to Montenegro and try to turn Montenegrins into little Americans. Okay. Montenegro has their own culture. There's excellent things in their culture that ought to be incorporated into the lives of the people of the church. They're Montenegrin Christians. Okay. There's other things that aren't so lovely, that aren't so pure, that aren't so virtuous. And those things should be deplored. And those things should be forsaken. And they ought to be an example of those that will not participate in those particular deeds. Very much the same for us as Americans. Very much the same. There are great things in our culture that are worthwhile and profitable. And for that we should be glad. There are other things that are missing from our culture that ought to be inculcated into our culture from the scriptures. And then there's other things in our culture that are deplorable and wicked and wrong and deserve to be decried as such. And we ought to have enough wisdom because we have the book of virtues, so to speak, with us. And may God help us that way. By the way, I do have William Bennett's Book of Virtues, too, which I also would recommend to you, but that's not the Bible. Okay, so here we go. Anyway, good book, though, nonetheless, especially if you have kids, something to look for. Well, Paul actually understands the Philippians, and he understands who they are. He understands their culture. He knows them well. And these words would have been very relevant to them. Now, they're relevant to us, but he picked them out purposely through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to apply to them, because they do apply to them. And I'm going to try to explain how that is as we go through here today. So to wrap up about culture, I'd just say this. Uh, We are talking about the context of activity here. You can rest assured that evil is not going to go quietly into the night. Evil will continue to prosper and do its wickedness until it is opposed. And it needs to be opposed rightly, not by prejudice, but by the gospel. And so may God help us to be those that oppose and push back culturally against the deep pit into which we've been falling for many, many years. We are the church. We're the salt of the earth. We're the remnant with whom God is pleased. And individually, Christian thinking leads to Christian behavior. Think on these things. So here's the words themselves as we go through here. First of all, the things that are true. And I put the Greek words there for you. I, I believe, I, I'm not looking at my outline at the moment, 
I can't remember if I put them, which for, oh, yeah, okay. I had them in my notes in the, the proper form to help you find them. Uh, actually, I left them in the adjective form, and um, sorry about that. It'd be a little bit harder to look up in a dictionary, but you can. You can find them in a dictionary uh, as you look here. Al-a-thing. Sorry about that. Adjectives being used as substantives. That's what we have here. This word is used at least 25 times in the New Testament by Matthew, by Luke, by John. Luke in the book of Acts, by the way. Um, Peter, John again in first and third epistles that he has. And Paul in three other places besides this one, most notably Romans 3, 4, which I think helps us understand. Let God be true, but every man a liar. He's the true God, and he's the God of truth. Saturate your mind with truth from God's word and from the things that are true. And that should comfort us. It should comfort us, number one, to know there is such a thing as truth, because that's being denied. People want to speak their truth. Okay, that's fine if your truth is God's truth. Okay. But people want to say, well, you know, they just, you disagree with them or they disagree with you. And they say, well, I'm just speaking my truth. There's no such thing. Okay. Doesn't exist. There's truth and then there's a million lies. Okay. And that's the way that it works. And so saturate your mind with truth. And that should comfort us in a world of mixed messages and compromise with lies swirling around us. There is such a thing as truth. And this kind of truth that we're talking about is in accordance with historical fact and reality. So that's the word that we're talking about. Look it up in all of its various times that it's being used, and you'll see it's being used as a historical fact or being used as a reality. It's not opinion. It's not conjecture. It's not something that uh, really someone else dreams up. But it is something that's sorely lacking amongst us today. Because you can find truth. Turn to CNN. They got their truth. Turn to MSNBC. They've got their truth. Turn to Fox News. They've got their truth. Turn to ABC. They've got their truth. And I do that many times. I, I'll actually watch a little bit of one, watch a little bit of another. And you could be a skeptic and say, what is truth? <laughs> but you ought to have a good, solid Christian background to be able to know truth when you hear it and discern a lie when you hear it. John 19, 33-36, basically just in verse 35, John says, He who has seen and testified, talking about the crucifixion of Christ, has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you may believe. John talking about himself. John 4 is a very interesting one. The woman at the well just to give you a brief snapshot of that and how it goes towards truth, Jesus said to her, go call your husband. She says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, 
You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. There's our word. There was a truth here. And Christ was getting at the heart of her and got to the heart of her by asking that very searching question. Very simple. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. And then she says, sir, you must be a prophet to know this. How would you know such a thing about me? And of course, she becomes a testimony. She becomes a a believer and a testimony uh, to all those in, in Samaria or all those in that area of Samaria there. It was a way for Christ to reveal himself to her. Really, in some ways, he revealed himself to her and to the Samaritans in a way that he was still shielding himself somewhat from the Jews that he was ministering to. It's a common word. We know that there is such a thing as truth. Noble. Noble is next. Noble in our list. You may have a little bit of trouble uh, if you're using other translations. So I've tried to put some, some uh, synonym words there that maybe is in your translation, like honorable or venerable. And Paul uses this word three other times in virtueless. Okay? This word is one of the qualifications of a deacon. 1 Timothy 3.8, deacons should be reverent and um, really has to do with um, being of good character. And it has to do with the wives of office bearers in 1 Timothy 3.11. And Titus 2.2 talks about uh, the older ones being grave. Grave. (laughs) Well, that may be a word that we're not so familiar with, so modern translations use uh, different words for that usually in Titus 2.2. But the word means that which is appropriate, that which is worthy of respect, that which is honorable, It can include things, not just people. It can be people, of course, but it also can be things. And if it's talking about things, uh, then um, it has to do with things that are awe-inspiring, things that are lofty, things that are majestic. So that's the idea of noble. And sometimes it helps to negate or look at it from the negative side. This, the opposite of these things that are noble would be things that are base, Things that are dishonorable, even things that are vulgar. Okay? And and I know you're aware of much of that that's in our culture. Think of the things that are just. Now, we're used, um, a form of Dechias is being used here, and we're used to that, but it's a little different form here because this isn't talking about um, our justification before God or our righteousness or anything like that. It's talking about what is proper or what is right. And Paul had already used it in Philippians earlier. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 7, he says, just as it's right for me to think this of you all. And he's praising them. Just as it's right, or just as it's proper for me to think this of you all. That's in chapter 1, verse 7. That's the same word there. And um, Matthew 20, verse 4 Well, it's not going to shock you because you know the parable. But it's a shocking parable. And still, it probably makes you a little uneasy. It does me too. I have to think on these things 
when I come to Matthew 20, verse 4, because this is absolutely countercultural of what we expect. Okay? And I'll just basically tell it to you. And you can look it up later in, in Matthew. The, the word is found in Matthew 20, verse 4. But the owner of a vineyard needs to hire workers. And so he finds some men that are more than happy to get a job. I'll pay you a day's wages for your day's work, which is going to be a 12-hour day. And they agree to that. And they're happy to get a job. But the job's not getting done. Three hours later, he hires some more. Doesn't say specifically what he'll give them, but hires some more. And then he has to hire some more. Comes down to the last hour of the day, and he wants to make that final push. He hires some more to work for an hour. And now it's payday. You know, back in those days, payday really was payday. It wasn't just the day you got paid. You got paid on your day of work. That's what you did. That was basically the way it was. And so payday comes, and they're lining up to get their pay. He starts with those. It's a parable. He starts with those that just worked an hour, and he gives them a denarius, an entire day's wages. And the guys in the back saying, oh, boy. <laughs> it's bonus time. You know, <laughs> going to get a bonus here. You know, look at that. You know, he's paying them, he's paying them, paying them. They come to the front and they get a denarius, a day's wages, and they say, wait a minute. You've made them equal to us. We bore the heat of the day. We worked hard for you for 12 hours. They worked one hour, and you give them the same thing that you give to us. That's not fair. And it doesn't seem fair, right? To us, it really doesn't. But it's just. There's a lesson being taught here. It's a parable. The lesson being taught is, look, we agreed to a day's wages for a day's work. And you are more than happy to do that. And now because I'm generous to these, you're angry with me? I can be generous with my things. Hmm, that was the answer, you know. Well, what's the message? What's the point? Why would Jesus tell that parable, you know? There's a reason. And part of the reason is, in this life, some people just have it tougher than others. In this life, some people just seem to have problem after problem after problem, and oftentimes not even of their own making. Some people have more trials through no fault of their own. Now, now some people bring their own trials on their own head. Okay, that's true. That has to be taken into account, too. But some people haven't done that. Some people are born to affluent and affluent parents. And that often doesn't work out very well for them, you know. Uh, they're often spoiled. They're often not uh, doing very well in life. And, and you, you know that just from many stories we could tell. But many, many others are born into poverty. They didn't choose to be born into poverty. They didn't choose to be born into a difficult situation. Some people are born to alcoholic parents. They didn't choose that. You know, it's not their fault. 
Some are born with physical disabilities. Sometimes disabilities so much so that they can't do anything like uh, a regular person would want to do uh, to, to make a living. Some overcome these disabilities with great perseverance and strength. But some disabilities are so much that they can't be overcome. So what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this. That God's providence in our own particular life should not be kicked against. You know, it should not kick against the providence of God. The circumstances of which you were born, the situation in which you were born, the situation you find yourself in. Sometimes we've made our own bed and we have to lie in it. This is true. Sometimes it was no fault of our own. You know, it's the providence of God. So guess what happens when you're living in the providence of God? You can trust God. You can trust God in the midst of those circumstances by his grace and for his glory. And some of the happiest Christians in the world have practically nothing that you and I have. They have practically nothing that you and I have. But what they do have is the joy of the Lord. Because their joy isn't found in their possessions and the things that they have. The joy is found in the Lord. Now, I'll grant you, if you're starving to death, you're probably not going to be very joyful about that. Okay? So I'll grant you that. You know. But as a general rule, you know, some of the people that have the least realize they have the most because they have Christ. And then there's one more thing we can say about this, this parable. Some people have lived almost their whole life as a Christian. And I can put myself into that category, saved very young, raised in a Christian home, and, uh, you know, lived my, my whole life as a Christian. Others come to Christ on their deathbed. They live their entire lives in sin. And then repent at the end. Receive eternal life at the end. And that's the point. What do we all get in the end? Every Christian has Christ and eternal life. And that's what counts in the long, grand scheme of things. Forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And we could say, that's not fair. I, I live my life as a Christian. I've gone through the trials that a Christian goes through. That person sinned all of his life, did all the things that he wanted to do, came to you in his dying moments. And you know what we should say about that? We should praise the Lord. He came in his dying moments. That's what we should say. We should be glad for that because he's a benevolent God. And that's the way he deals with us, with great benevolence. No one deserves eternal life. It's the gift of God by his grace. Think on these things. These are the kind of things we need to think about. Instead of how we're being so misused. The things that are pure. The things that are pure. It means exactly what you think it means. Morally pure and blameless. Things that you would not be ashamed of. Things you would not be ashamed of. They're morally pure and blameless. 2 Corinthians 11.2 Paul desires to present the church to Christ as a pure virgin. 1 Peter 3.1 and 2 some, some biblical words of wisdom to ladies who have lost husbands. 
Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste, or when they observe your pure conduct accompanied by fear. That's the fear of the Lord. This word pure, it's used eight times in the New Testament, usually encouraging us to be pure. In the Septuagint, it brings in the Old Testament idea of being ceremonially clean. Think about that when you're reading the Old Testament. All the times about being ceremonially clean, and you might just kind of pass it by and think, well, what is this? Here we go again. This is being said hundreds of times as I'm reading through the Old Testament, Exodus, Leviticus, and in the various places to be ceremonially clean. It's purity. Purity of people, purity of things, you know. So think on the things that are pure and be pure. The things that are lovely. Now this word's only used once in the New Testament. It's used here. It's not found in any of the Stoic virtue lists. It has to do with aesthetics. It's pleasing. It can even be things that bring forth love. I was surprised this week because I I knew in the Septuagint it was in the story of Esther. And I've I've got a copy of the Septuagint that a very kind person in the church bought for me uh, many years ago. I I use it often, but I've never looked at it in the book of Esther. And so I did because I wanted to see where this word was used. And boy, was I surprised. I'm going to have to read the entire book of Esther in the Septuagint. Um, I'll be more than happy to uh, have my own copy of the scriptures, the copy of the scriptures you have. But they've added a bunch of stuff. They've added a bunch of stuff. And I don't know why. I haven't had enough time to to look at it and see. I need to do some more study on that. But uh, it says a lot more than our translations do. And in Esther 5.1, it talks about Esther's face. Now, the context is she's going before the king. Okay. And, and you know the story, or most of you do. She's going before the king. She's not allowed to go in there unless he calls for her. But he's, she's got to go in there to save her people. Okay. And uh, so she's going to go in there, risk her life. If he doesn't raise the golden scepter to her, she will die. But she goes in there, and of course, he raises the golden scepter. Septuagint says a whole lot more about that than, than, uh, than what we have, when, and, and I trust our Bibles, absolutely. Kind of interesting, though. Uh, the book of Esther doesn't say anything about God. Um, its providence is shown throughout, but you don't ever see the name of God in there. Septuagint is there. It talks about God, you know, and actually says that term. So, This is what it says about lovely. As she comes into the room, quote, and she was blooming in the perfection of her beauty, and her face was cheerful as it was lovely and kind. Okay, pretty good, you know. And that's what it said about Esther. And then it goes on in the next verse, yet she was terrified inside, which we know was true too. But then the Septuagint goes on to say, that God changed the spirit of the king to gentleness. An intense feeling, he sprang from off his throne and took her into his arms. 
sounded like a Hallmark movie, right? <laughs> but uh, our Bible doesn't tell us this, but that's what, that's what it says in the Septuagint. So I'm going to look that up a little bit more and see about it. But that's where I found lovely in the Septuagint there. And um, the point is, her beauty and love brought forth in the king what was actually there and inspired him through God's providence to save the Jewish people. And that we know is true. So think on the things that are lovely. You know, we have some, some good artists in our church that are very adept at, at uh, making things, uh, paintings even. And, and I know myself, and, and I've thought about this a lot because I've talked to, to them and some of them about this. It's very easy to think, oh, what use is art? A lot of work, but what do you get out of it? There, there's no utilitarian value there. You're not going to sell it, right? Probably not going to sell it and make any money off of it. So what's the point? And, and that's just missing the point when you think that way. Because not everything has to be utilitarian. Some things are valuable in and of themselves because they are lovely. And just look around the auditorium. We have a very plain auditorium. But it's getting spruced up a little bit. And some things are happening slowly but surely, you know. Want to make it a little more pleasing, a little more balanced by some wise interior decorating. And there's more plans on the way of what's going to happen now. Is it really worth going to all that effort? Shouldn't we be bland and plain? Well, I've thought that way, but I don't think that way anymore. You know, I think we can need to do the best that we can do with what we have. Well, I could tear down the building and build a stained glass cathedral. We're not going to do that. Absolutely not. You know, but there's nothing wrong with making use of what you have. And the temple and the tabernacle are really good examples of things that are lovely. God goes into great detail to show how these buildings and the artwork should be made. Skilled craftsmen were raised up by God himself to design these things. Let me just read you a little bit from Exodus 35. Exodus 35, starting in verse 30. And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah, and he's filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge in all manner of workmanship to design artistic work, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. And he's put in his heart the ability to teach. And then it talks about some of the men that he's teaching how to do these things. He's filled them, God has filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen and of all the weaver, those who do every work and those who design artistic works. That's for the tabernacle. But at the same time, not everything was lovely at the tabernacle. Thought about this. It really wasn't very lovely when you'd watch the sacrifices being made and the blood being spilled. That wasn't lovely. But what it pointed to was lovely because it pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ our Lord. 
on Calvary, that he would give himself for us, and that he would die, he'd be buried, he would rise again and ascend into heaven and sit on the right hand of God's throne. That's absolutely lovely. Things of good report. I'm running out of time. I'm going to finish, though. I can do it. Good report. Another word that's only used here in the New Testament and not at all in the Septuagint. But it's easy to know what it means because it's well attested to. Worthy of praise and approval. It's hard to translate into English. I have some helps that uh, help those that want to translate the Bible into other languages and maybe languages that have never had a Bible in it. And they give you some suggestions of, of things in English that you can maybe put idiomatically into their language. And of good report, what people should praise is what they say. These are things that people should praise. And to quote the commentator Hansen, whatever words, works, or persons are well spoken of by people deserve our consideration. I thought about that. I thought, you know, that's true. Uh, even, even lost people have often good things um, about them that are worthy of commending. I know nothing about the soul of Alex Trebek, but I've been a Jeopardy fan for, for many, many years, and Alex Trebek uh, was a great Jeopardy host. Took over for a guy before him, and I was kind of upset when he did that because I liked the guy before him, but uh, Alex Trebek did a tremendous job, won me over over the years there. And, um, you know, I watched Alex Trebek, and I actually watched the last uh, season pretty much, taped it and watched it at my convenience because I was impressed by him. I was impressed by a man that was persevering through pain and suffering and cancer. But he kept on going. That was commendable. It was difficult. It had to be hard. And I saw an interview with him, and he talked about the fact it was hard. He didn't talk about the Lord, I'm sorry to say. Don't know his soul. But he did talk about how hard it was. But he talked about the love of what he did, you know. So people speak well of Alex Trebek. I don't know if I've ever heard anybody speak ill of him, you know, because he had some qualities that were good qualities of good report. Well, that's the end of the adjectives, and that's really why I wanted to settle today, because really the last things we need to say, I don't think need a lot of um, uh, explanation. If there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. This kind of all-encompasses brings it all home together. And there, is, there are things that are virtuous, and there are things that are praiseworthy. So deeply think, deeply ponder, deeply meditate on these things. And the God of peace will be with you. And you know what that tells me? Final, final. When I say finally, I really mean finally this time. Okay. You know what this says? God knows our thought life. Have you ever thought about that? God knows our thought life. And God cares about our thought life. And you know why he cares about our thought life? Because he cares about us. He cares about us. And who incorporates all these virtues into his life and is deserving of all praise and should be constantly at the forefront of our thoughts? Do I have to say it? 
You know who it is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible's all about him. And Revelation 5.13 says, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you that you've taken care to even tell us how we can order our thoughts in a way that's helpful and profitable for us. Help us to do that. Oh, it's sure, we need to stand against sin. We need to stand against evil. We need to stand against things. If we're going to stand firm, we have to do that. But if that's all we do, and we don't look at the beauty and the wonder and all the things. We see it in creation, awe-inspiring things. Let's concentrate on these things and meditate upon them and be better off for it. And you promise to be the God of peace. Lord, give us peace, and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.